I'm sure many of us, maybe not all of us, but many of us have followed this week the build-up to and then the appearance of um, Mr. Salmond at the Scottish Parliament's committee investigating the whole procedures by which the Scottish Government um, launched a case really against Mr. Salmond way back even before his case in court last year to do with these sexual allegations or sexual assault allegations. And Mr. Salmond ended up getting an award of over £500,000 because the judge felt that the Scottish Government had mis mismanaged their investigation into procedures concerning uh, Alex Salmond and the things surrounding that allegation. And of course, it was made very clear on Wednesday that that particular set of cases, the particular people involved, that is not under investigation. It's the Scottish Government's investigation and the dealings with the whole case that is now being looked at. And it has certainly been billed in the media. Interesting enough, not so much in Reporting Scotland, I've noticed, but in UK media, it has been billed as one of the major political turmoils of recent years. And I'm sure those of us, again, who are interested in those things will be looking forward to the First Minister making an appearance on Wednesday, trying to outshine the Chancellor down in London, no doubt, um, and her response to all that was said last week by Mr Salmon. Whatever the situation, and it's not for me or others, we don't know all that went on, but whatever the situation, it must surely cause us concern. If by any chance there is anyone listening who seems to think that actually politicians and politics and the media and everything else are innocent of any wrongdoing or suspect behaviour, then I don't know where you've been living um, for the bulk of your life. Somebody like myself, whose first love was in history and politics, would tell you time and again that there has been no time in the history of this country where there hasn't been at least shadowlands where those who have led us have dwelt and all sorts of things that will never be revealed or only be revealed 50, 75 or 100 years after the event, things did take place in our name or behind the scenes, which certainly at best are questionable and at times were downright wrong, morally and judicially. Interesting enough, Neil Oliver, the historian, on yesterday morning, or yesterday of lunchtime, on any questions on the radio, was he was one of the panellists. And his comments are interesting. Whether you agree with them or not is up to you. But he made the comment that this at present time in Scotland, nothing can happen or no one can do anything unless the First Minister gives it the thumbs up. And whatever you might think of that comment, it's interesting that someday a historian who has a knowledge of things and somebody who actually quoted from the Bible, one of the few times I've ever heard the Bible been quoted in any questions, somebody who is a citizen should make that comment. We should be concerned about the governance of our country. Especially if we're going to enter into a debate once again about independence. But before we get self-righteous and point the finger to others, and it's easy to do that, isn't it? God's word, I would suggest, as we've looked at over these past Sundays, clearly points the finger to us and reminds us, that is the people of God, of our calling to be that light, to be that salt, and of the need for God's wisdom revealed amongst his people 
to be seen in our behavior, not just individually and privately, but corporately and how we engage with society. We, as a church fellowship, many of the fellowship groups looked at the book of Proverbs. I don't think it is a coincidence, actually, that when this pulpit Bible, which is of some age, is opened, it naturally opens at the book of Proverbs, the book of Psalms, or indeed the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 4 is what's opened up in before me, in interest of Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 7. I just noticed the verse. It says wisdom, this is the authorized version, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Read that again. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. And it goes on to speak, take fast hold of her instructions. Let her not go. Keep her, for she is thy life. And how is wisdom to be seen in society? What's well, meant to be seen in the church, in the people of God. It's meant to be incarnated as Jesus Christ is wisdom incarnate. So the people of God, the body of Christ, are to incarnate that wisdom. And the book of Proverbs has much to say, particularly about wisdom amongst leaders. There are a way that seems right to man, the book of Proverbs tells us, but the end results in death. But there is wisdom which leads to life. Let me read Proverbs 14 and verse 33. Wisdom reposes in the heart of the discerning, and even among fools she lets herself be known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin condemns any people. A king delights in a wise servant, but a shameful servant arouses his fury. That's a very apt word for those who lead us, those who lead us and those who work beside and work alongside, work with those who lead us, that they have wise colleagues to help them lead wisely. That's not always the case. We know that in political life. And of course, that theme is repeated time and time again. Again, just a couple of verses. Proverbs 28 and verse 28, when the wicked rise to power, people go into hiding. But when the wicked perish, the righteous thrive. And then it goes on to say in chapter 29, when the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. And again, verse 4, and by justice a king gives country stability, but those who are greedy for bribes tears it down. Again, verse 12, if a ruler listens to lies, all his officials become wicked. And again, verse 16, when the wicked thrive, so does sin, but the righteous will see their downfall. And then in verse 18, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. And we've seen from the book of Ezekiel that where God's people fail to reveal that wisdom, the godly wisdom of what it means to live in faith, and in obedience to the eternal God, when that is cast off, when that's not followed through in life and in living, then the consequences are serious. Actions lead to consequences, as we're hearing and seeing on our media to do with particularly the case in Edinburgh and between Mrs. Ms. Sturgeon and Mr. Salmon. Actions lead to consequences. And how are people to see the difference that God makes? Well, as amongst the wise leaders of God's people. And Jesus picks up that theme. Jesus picks that theme. Just one 
a series of verses just before we move on to Ezekiel. Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 11, verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. The light of life inhabiting the people of God, shining that light of godly wisdom out into society and making its impact, revealing the wisdom of God wisdom that leaders do well to heed and reflect upon. But when that isn't revealed, then there are problems. And I would want to suggest as we've looked to the book of Ezekiel, and if you have your Bibles open now to the book of Ezekiel, that that is actually what God is saying through his word. That the church has failed in so many ways to be that light, that wisdom bringing righteousness into our society that it was called to be. And we therefore are in the position we are in with leaders of the type that we have. In many ways, it's not their fault. It's our fault. So let's turn to the book of Ezekiel. And we've been looking at this section in the book of Ezekiel. Somebody was asking during the week, um, by particular this section, well, because this section in a sense, sums up so much of what continues to be said through a large part of the rest of the book. Said in different ways, said very graphically, um, said with different particular angles, but nonetheless, these, this little section we're looking at and opening up and exploring really is the theme of what the book, the bulk of the book, is about. Although we shall see, as I said last Sunday after Easter, that there is hope and there is promise and there is restoration. And we come to that, rightly so, in the light of Easter. But this morning, in a sense, we're completing our explanation of this little chapter and this little section. As we've looked at Judea or Judah and the consequences for them of their idolatry and erroneous teaching. And how that has led to the glory of God departing from the temple. We saw that last Sunday, moving outside of the city. Actually moving to reside in the Mount of Olives, where the Lord himself went to. If you remember, the disciples, all the different connections of that. It moves to that part outside of the city. And also in the spirit comes to Babylon, to where Ezekiel is. God is not restrained. He actually was in the midst of his exiled people. And as we shall see even this morning, there is that promise that he will be with them. And we shall certainly see more of that after Easter. And so God moves out because of the people's sin. And what is idolatry? Idolatry ultimately is making the idol of self. I'm the king of the castle. It was sad, actually, to hear yesterday of the funeral of Captain Tom. Sad because obviously he was a very fine fellow and had done much and received much acclaim for doing much over this last year of his life. But interesting enough, it was a secular service. It was a celebrant who took the service. There were no hymns or anything else. And the music at the very end of the service was of Sinatra singing, I've done it my way. Sad to say, that is what idolatry is. I'm the king of the castle. I'm doing it my way. 
or the way that suits me or my immediate surroundings. I am God, the ultimate arbitrator of what I think, what I say, of what I do. And through that perspective, we then view life, including all that's happened over this last year. That is idolatry. It's not building a wee statue in your garden and going down and bowing down before it. Not today. But it is saying, I am at the centre of my life, of my world, and of my understanding of it. And that idolatry, supported by questionable and outright erroneous prophecies, and we've seen the connection between that and questionable and outright teaching within the life of the church today, that idolatry was going to lead Judah into disastrous times. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4. And here we have, and as I've said before, Ezekiel in very vivid ways acts out. Long before we had visual aids for children's addresses where we did things to tell or make a point. So the Bible, of course, is full of that. Jesus, of course, was the supreme master of that. But the prophets also, and here particularly Ezekiel, is invited to do various things which act out and which portray before the people who were watching him there and near the Keber River in Babylon, God's word. Ezekiel 4 and verse 1. Now, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan, place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and turn your face towards it. It will be under siege, and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the people of Israel. Then lie on your left side, and put the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the days of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. After you have finished this, lie down again, this time on your right side, and bear the sin of the people of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face towards the siege of Jerusalem, and with bared arm prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourselves. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food to each each day and eat it at set times. Also measure out a sixth of a hin of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a loaf of barley bread. Bake it in the sight of all the people using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said, in this way, the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I will drive them out. Then Ezekiel said, not so, sovereign Lord, I've never defiled myself from my youth until now. I've never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No impure meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, the Lord said, I will let you bake your bread over cow dung instead of human excrement. He then said to me, son of man, I'm about to cut off the food supply in Jerusalem. The people will eat rationed food and anxiety and drink rationed water in despair, for food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Very graphic demonstration of what actually happened when Nebuchadnezzar returned and besieged Jerusalem and the people were starved out of the city, literally. And the measures found are minuscule. Down in even my own Bible, we're talking about 
eight ounces or 230 grams of wheat. Uh, Two-thirds of a quart or about 0.6 litre of water. That's not sufficient. That's all he was to drink. That's not enough water. That affects your body, affects your kidneys, affects everything. And so literally he was becoming dehydrated and starving. And he was to act that out before the people. The cost of being a prophet of the Lord in his day, and I would suggest even today, is costly. But what does it mean? Well, of course, it means that the people of Israel were going to be besieged. They were going to be surrounded. There was to be famine. And they were to be appalled by the consequences of it. Now, sometimes Christians in the church can become a wee bit obsessed about how society has changed and the poor me syndrome can become very, very strong. Indeed, as I've said before, the subjective and spurious spiritualities that many even professing evangelicals believe feed that poor me. And we constantly need to be somehow sussed up and strengthened and helped and made to feel better about ourselves in order that we can face life and living. And it's easy for us to fall into that, you know, mindset of, oh, poor me. But nonetheless, God's church is besieged. Just think of some of the situations that are now arising within our society. The whole named person scenario. Late abortions and home abortions. The hate crime bill. And a whole series of other moral and ethical issues. A recent survey carried out by the BMA suggests that over half, in fact two-thirds of doctors think that some form of euthanasia should be brought in. It's a bit ironic you should think that at the same time as we bankrupted our society in order to preserve the life of the elderly. You can respond to that and talk about that later. But you see just the tensions, and that's only just minor if you spend the rest of the time going through everything. Interesting enough, one of the articles that the men's, society, men's group were invited to read, by the way, I got the date wrong, it wasn't last Thursday night, it's this Thursday night that we're looking at things. But nonetheless, um, on this Thursday night, we'll be looking at this paper that's just recently been written by a Christian thinker. Again, it's open for debate, but nonetheless, I'm going to quote from it. It goes, he writes, no nation or community is religiously neutral, and no state approaches, approaches governance in a, commas, neutral way. Our ideas about life, health, and liberty are thus a natural development from our religious views of the world. Sphere sovereignty that maximizes freedom is a distinctively Christian view of the norm for human government. Christians especially need to let go of the vague notion that governments and states act in a religiously neutral way for the, inverted commas, common good. And he goes on to say later on, we can fully expect in times of cultural pressures such as plague and war, what is truly in a people religiously will manifest itself. If the Christian worldview has steeply declined, and I don't think many of us can deny that it hasn't declined, certainly within our own country, we cannot expect that civil authorities will be governed by Christian principles for the preservation of freedom, dignity, and liberty. And he goes on, obviously, to apply that. Nor can we expect, he says, that the biblical understanding of abundant life, which includes the flourishing of the arts of life, 
and a realistic expectation of life that leads to death, where, sure, where real human life is more than survival, will be maintained. Let me just read that line again. Christians especially need to let go of the vague notion that governments and states act in a religiously neutral way for the common good. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, against the principalities and powers of this present age. Spiritual warfare is at hand. The natural default position of a human being will be in the place of idolatry, not in the place of the worship of God. And so therefore, it is right that the church should feel besieged at times, surrounded by a spirit and an attitude which is unchristian. Too many of us, including myself, have been influenced by the whole concept of Christendom, where we're all Jock Tamsin Bairns, and we're all on a broad road. That broad road, of course, ultimately leads to destruction. But we've been inculcated in that mindset that we think, well, they mean it for good. Judah was going to learn that some very bad things were going to happen to them. And the spiritual famine, that they, the, the physical famine that they were experiencing is surely seen in the spiritual famine that we see in our land today. So let's read on, chapter 5. Now, son of man, take a sharp sword, chapter 5 of Ezekiel, and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. Then take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind. For I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few hairs and tuck them away in the folds of your garments. Again, take a few of these and throw them into the fire and burn them up. A fire will spread from there to all Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I've set in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You have been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict in punishment on you in the sight of the nations because of all your detestable idols. I will do to you what I have never done before and I will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, parents will eat their children. And children will eat their parents. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will shave you. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with a drawn sword. Then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will be subdued. I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath on them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. I will make you a ruin and reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt 
and a warning, an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath and with sting rebuke. I, the Lord, have spoken. And he continues for a few more verses on that line. These are solemn things. And yet, that's what happened in history. The sign of a true prophecy is that it actually works out and is revealed sooner or later in history. And particularly the warning here about what happens. Parents weep their children, children weep parents. Actually is suggested that in the famine that was inflicted upon Jerusalem, cannibalism did take place. And certainly the eating of dead bodies took place. This is obviously an extreme situation. But nonetheless, a principle and a warning which we see being worked out in the church today, I would suggest. A lack of spiritual fruitfulness, especially within our families. A fracturing of the spiritual relationships that bind people together. A drastic decline in church attendance and open profession of faith. And a lack of endurance amongst many who profess their faith. There is famine. There is fruitlessness. There is barrenness in the land. Verse 17 of chapter 5, I will send famine and wild beasts against you, and they will leave you childless. Remember what Jesus had to say, speaking, using a different analogy, speaking about the people of God, the vine and the branches. Remember what Jesus had to say about that. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, John 15 and verse 5, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And then verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last, fruit that will endure. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you. The lack of spiritual endurance, the lack of fruitfulness within so much of what we do, including so much of what the evangelical church does, is serious. I've had time, obviously, during this lockdown to reflect. And I can well think of times when I myself have been at the forefront of suggesting we do X, Y, and Z. And much of that was worthy, and with all of it, I can assure you, was done with good intent. But actually now, with hindsight, how fruitful has it been? How fruitful is it? Fruit that endures. Fruit that lasts fruit that is tangibly seen in society and makes a difference. Now we thank God that there has been fruitful work, thankfully, within this church. People have come to faith. People have grown in the faith. People have gone from this church to serve the church wider afield. We thank God for all of that. I don't want to take anything away from that. But there are questions that need to be asked. 
answers that need to be sought. Honesty that needs to be embraced. In a time of reflection, which surely this past year, God has intended to give purity. And it's that less of fruitfulness, not the barrenness of God's people, but the fruitfulness of God's people that should be the lens through which we need to judge and assess much of what we're doing with the young, with the elderly, with the folks in the middle, and with our community. But time is moving on. There's going to be, the city are going to be besieged. They're going to be barren. They're going to be childless. And there's all sorts of terrible things that are going to happen. And of course, the shaving of a beard for a priest was a major, major scandal. It was a sign of him almost giving up the priesthood, although he wasn't. But it was a public sign of that. You can just see what this was costing Ezekiel. Again, it was not easy. Although the few hairs, notice, are kept and tucked away in the folds of the garment, suggesting that for some, there's also going to be the hope of a new beginning. Let's read on. Chapter 6. And we draw things to a close at this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against the mountains of Israel. Prophesy against them and say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to the mountains and hills, to the ravines and the valleys. I'm about to bring a sword against you and I will destroy your high places. Your altars will be demolished and your incense altars will be smashed. And I will slay your people in front of your idols. I will lay the dead bodies of the Israelites in front of their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you live, the towns will be laid waste and the high places demolished. So that your altars will be laid waste and devastated. Your idols smashed and ruined. Your incense altars broken down. And what you have made wiped out. Your people will fall slain among you. And you will know that I am the Lord. But I will spare some. Here's our note of hope, which, as I say, we will look at later. Here, but I will spare some. For some of you will escape the sword, and when you have scattered among the lands and nations, then in the nations where they have been carried captive, those who escape will remember me, how I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts, which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil they have done and for all their detestable practices. And they will know that I am the Lord. I did not threaten in vain to bring this calamity on them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Strike your hands together and stamp your feet and cry out, Alas, because of all the wicked and detestable practices of the people of Israel. For they will fall by the sword, famine and plague. One who is far away will die of the plague. And one who is near will fall by the sword. And anyone who survives and is spared will die of famine. So will I pour out my wrath on them. And they will know that I am the Lord. When their people lie slain among their idols, around their altars, in every high hill, and on all the mountain tops, under every spreading tree, and every leafy oak, places where they offer fragrant incense to all their idols. And I will stretch out my hand against them, make the land a desolate waste for the desert to dibble wherever they live. Then they will know that I am the Lord. The picture of desolation is terrible. And again, that's what took place. The very sacred places of Israel, the temple, Bethel, other high places were destroyed, as were the places of their idolatry. And I think we're going to see over these coming years many of the so-called gods that we as Christian people have bowed down to, the God of materialism, the God of success, the God of having money, the God of, of our appearance, and of how we project ourselves on social media. All these things are already falling apart. 
Just wait to the Chancellor. There's budget, and all will flow from that this week to see what might have to happen economically in order to deal with the mess that our finances, public finances are now in. And the consequences of that will be worked out in these coming years, and many of our idols will disintegrate before our eyes. And of course, empty church buildings, other religions taking hold, the ethical moral decay, which I referred to at the beginning, that which is wrong being lauded as right, and that which is right being decried as phobic and shouldn't be given any place or room for debate or discussion. All of that is the outworking of God's judgment on his people. And yes, on our lives. But as I finish, I hope that you've noticed that there is a refrain through all these chapters, through chapter 6, indeed through all the chapters we've been reading, and the refrain is this, then they will know that I am the Lord. And that surely is our cry. As we perhaps join with Ezekiel and strike our hands together and stamp our feet and cry out, alas, as in repentance, we seek God's mercy as we confess our own sinfulness and failing, our lack of fruitfulness, spiritual fruitfulness. As we grieve over the barrenness spiritually of our land, and certainly the signs of that are there. We also thank God that he's the God of promise, that there would be those who would escape the sword, and yes, in exile would know him, we will look at that after Easter. But in the meantime, what is God doing? Well, for the believer, he's making us, I trust, more aware of the Lord. I do pray sincerely. It's nearly a year now since we were last gathered here in church. And even then, there was only 30 of us, 30 or 33, sorry, back in March. I do pray that over this last year, your knowledge and awareness of the sovereignty, of the majesty, of the awesomeness of Almighty God has been deepened. We rightly cry, holy, holy. We rightly say, I'm sorry. We weep for our nation. We cry over the state of the church. This is a sign, my friends, this is a sign of God's judgment that this church is empty today. And I'm not the only minister that's saying it. Over 250 wrote to the Scottish government to say that they saw that. When people like Mark Nathan Owens and Robert Wainwright, two great men of God, but different in how they would express the faith or how they would articulate the faith in many ways, both say that what we're seeing is a sign of God's judgment on the lack of godly leadership amongst bishops and moderators Yes, amongst people of my own generation, and I am only too well aware of that. And we have to heed what God is saying. Not point the finger to others, especially not to those who are not believers. But quietly, humble our hearts, confess our need, and wait upon the 
Ben ve ve Yud. Why? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, may he, he, that banner there, he is King of the ages, almighty God, perfect love, ever just and true. Who will not fear you and bring you praise? All the nations will come to you. We thank you, O God, our Father, that that was the promise given to Abraham that of him he would make a mighty nation. That the stars and the sky, the grains of sand in the desert were nothing compared to the number that would consist of that people. But the calling of that people was to be that light set upon the hill, Jerusalem, the holy city, Zion, where the temple and the palace were to be covered in white stone that would reflect the brilliance of the sunshine so that from miles away there would be a, a beacon of light shining out across the lands to the nations beyond the borders of Israel. And the calling of your church to put that light in a public place, to bear witness to the wisdom of God to the people round about, so that others may see, so others, as that hymn tells us, may seek you, as your arms of love reach out to them, so that your light will shine in all the earth, bringing grace and a great salvation. We thank you, O God, our Father, for your saving work within us, bringing peace and the hope of glory. We thank you for your mercy to us over this past year, for sustaining us as a people, and we thank you you have done that up and down our land and throughout our world. I was in contact with one of our missionary partners, Andrew Robertson in Bolivia, where they don't have lockdown, all the things that we have, very largely because simply as a country they can't afford to do it. And yet how through these very challenging times you have kept your people and built your church. We do pray for Andrew and for all those who serve in these very challenging environments thanking you for their faith and for their boldness and for their witness. And we say sorry. We stamp our feet metaphorically. We clap our hands, not clapping our hands in praise, but as an expression of our sorrow, we say alas. We remember that Nehemiah, a faithful servant of you, Confess the sins of your people, not because he had done anything wrong, but as part of your people, he associated with them and with their sinfulness. And Lord, it may be that's us. We've been faithful, many faithful folks listening to that this morning. That we don't distance ourselves, but as part of the people of God, the church of God, the body of Christ, we too say sorry. We confess our failings. We confess our lack of fruitfulness. We grieve over the state of our nation. 
and over the weakness, the subjectiveness, the superficiality, and the fragility of much of Yorkshire. And we seek your mercy. But above everything else, we pray that whatever may happen, many will know that you are the Lord. And in these coming years of ongoing challenge, that above everything else will be our desire. That this little building here and the work that we do amongst different people, different segments of the population, both of the congregation and of the wider community, that this little place would continue to be a place where you speak your word. And through its ministry, others will come to know that you are the Lord one who alone is worthy of our worship and the sacrifice of our lives. Lord Jesus Christ, hear our prayer. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship and companionship of the Holy Spirit rest upon us and journey with us this day and forevermore.